times long gone, in days of yore, there are legends and tales of dark folklore. Round candlelight and fireside, the tales are shared, enchanting dark secrets in hushed tones declared. And from those days, both present and past, we beseech you now to brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Sleepless tales commence, fellow travelers. I'm your guide, David Cummings. Things are getting uncanny in the valley, eh? Last week's foray into Goat Valley campgrounds took a decidedly vicious turn. Oh, no, no, don't worry. Don't worry, I won't drop any spoilers for you folks who are saving up to binge the series. That's what I've been thinking about this week, actually. Holding on to information keeping it close to your chest until you're good and ready to get it all out there. Sometimes I wonder how long our mysterious benefactor from last season, Boston Coleridge, had been sitting on all those documents. We know it was many years. Well, according to Joanna, at least. But, I don't know, I think she was telling the truth there. So I just wonder, what led him to decide how long to wait? What made him think I was the perfect person to send them to? I asked partly because, as you know, I still have the documents he bequeathed me, of which I've released uh, maybe 2%. There's way too many to put on the podcast. Not all of them are suitable to be presented as audio fiction, either. But hey, I guess we have Sleepless Sanctuary Publishing now. Maybe more of Coleridge's documents will see the light of day. Or maybe they already have... So sorry if I don't have that much to say today. I'm caught between a lodge and a gold place. I've got the Stanley on the left of me, gold meadow to the right, and here I am stuck in the middle with suitcases. Packing for the Stanley Hotel live show is easier. I know what to take. Change of clothes, toothbrush, parabolic microphone, Brandon, script printouts, but my vacation to the gold meadow resort, hmm, who knows? They mentioned scuba diving. Should I bring my own oxygen tank, or will they have some on site? I guess I should call them up. They did say that if I had any questions, I could speak to one of their friendly advisors. Maybe I'll do just that in the coming weeks. Ah, but for now, I've got a podcast to host. In our first tale... We join Barry and his best friend as they head out on their final scouting trip before they graduate. It's a main event, and they're going canoeing. But in this tale, shared with us by author Zachary Joseph, none of the lads' Boy Scout training can prepare them for what's waiting out on the river. I join Mike Delgadio 
and Graham Rowett in performing this tale. So let's row out and gaze upon the beautiful blue water. Just be wary, because Jay didn't drown. If you've checked the news lately, you'll know that the Boy Scouts are screwed. It's hard to recruit new members when sex abuse is the first result when you look us up. Maybe that's for the best. To let the damn thing die, considering how many people have been hurt. If I'd quit sooner, then maybe Jay would have quit too. And we never would have gone on that damned main trip. But I didn't. I clung on even as Troop 17 steadily bled out its scouts, until finally Jay and I were the only ones left. It was the summer before our senior year, our last chance to do something big before college. With the last of the Troop's funds, we set out north, canoes secured to the top of our Scoutmaster's pickup. Hey, Barry. Jay twists in the front seat to peer back at me, a mischievous grin worn under his Bruins cap. We must be pretty special, huh? I mean, how many troops do you think can fit in a single car? (sighs) Less special than you think. How many troops are left, period? I sigh and set my head against the window, feeling the tremors in the road as the car totters along. Hey now, don't get all melancholic on me. You're pissing all over the mood. Language! Really, Dad? I'm going to be an adult in two months and I can't say piss in front of you? Your dad doesn't mind one bit. But your Scoutmaster, that's a different story entirely. Mr. Moore takes one hand off the wheel to slip under his son's cap, ruffling Jay's short brown hair. Uh. I smile, turn back to the window, and stare. A glistening river runs parallel to the rocky street, hidden behind a shroud of dense forest. It seems as if the trunks are inching closer and closer as we drive further from home. And somewhere not so far ahead, the trees will stand in a single file as one impenetrable wall. It's evening when the car finally slows to a halt. The dirt lot is empty. The three of us hop out of the car and start to unpack the gear in the back. We make quick work of the tent, staking its corners into the earth in a grassy clearing by the river. When camp is finally set, Sweat shines on each of our foreheads in the molten glow of the sun. With the Scoutmaster's go-ahead, Jay and I slip out of our clothes and wade into the shimmering water. In spite of the thick summer heat, the river is cool, and the hairs on my arms stand erect as an aquatic wind brushes past my legs. Jay and I stare on as the river stretches infinitely towards the horizon, mesmerized by the pastel pinks and reds of the watercolor sky. First thing tomorrow, you and me, out there, alone. When I think of Jay, I remember him as he was then. Lean, with long legs and thin shoulders, half submerged, naked except for his underwear, grinning at me. Jay and I sit nestled together, drying by the flickering embers of the fire. We listen as Jay's father tells stories of his previous trips. The starving wanderer who had begged to take refuge in his camp one night, 
When Mr. Moore had finally obliged and invited the man inside, the stranger simply shook his head and walked away, disappearing into the forest. I shouldn't have offered, but he seemed so... so scared. And then there was the story of the procession of empty canoes that one by one had floated down the river. There must have been four of them, one after the other. When Jay and I are finally dry, the river is as black as ink, as deep as the midnight sky. I give it one final look before retiring for the night. First thing tomorrow. Its gentle humming lulls me into a blissful sleep. I awake to a fine mist draped over the camp. The gleam of the sun barely pierces through the gray of the horizon. Jay rumbles excitedly as he stuffs his father's pancakes down his throat. And before I can finish, he's taken my hand and we've set off to the car, taking down the canoe and heaving its deep green hull to the shore. Hmm, shouldn't you two wait for the haze to clear? Mr. Moore scrapes the last of his plate syrup into his mouth. Oh, Dad. Mr. Scoutmaster, we're not amateurs. It's just a little mist. Fine. Just be smart. You know where the flare gun is? In the tin box behind the front seat, along with the bandage, gauze, compass. All right, all right. Mr. Moore grins. Go on, then. Have fun on your date. And so Jay and I shove the canoe out onto the river and climb aboard. Our oars glide through the smoky water mirror to the sky. We propel ourselves away from the shore until it seems that we are totally alone, stranded in the clouds. The river is still, and the canoe settles as our hands let go of the oars. Barry, Jay's whisper echoes in the quiet. We sit, with our knees pressed together, facing each other in the cramped boat. Then suddenly his hands wrap around the back of my head, and his lips are on mine, and we laugh, <laughs> laugh, laugh. I fall back, and his chest lands on mine. We lay there, kissing, grinning. Say what you will about the Boy Scouts. It has certainly been an enlightening experience for me. Is this the last time we'll get to do this? Jay frowns. We're staying here for two weeks. Of course it's not the last time. That is, unless you decide to run off like the lunatic from Dad's story. I peck him on the cheek. No, idiot. I mean, after this trip, when we're off to college, are we going to... I don't know, what are we going to do if we end up going to different colleges? If we're hours and hours apart? Are we out of time? Jay shakes his head. This isn't a very romantic conversation. It's like I said, you just love pissing on the mood. It's my second favorite thing. Jay's lips find mine once more. But a blinding light suddenly glares in my eye and I motion for him to move away. What's wrong? I think the fog's clearing. Time to start rowing if we want some privacy. Really? Still looks pretty thick to me. I sit up. He's right. The fog is even denser than before. I stretch my arm over the water. My hand is swallowed from sight as it plunges into the mist. I pull back and my fingers are damp from the moist air. Jesus. I dry my hand against my thigh. I scan the horizon for the glint of the sun circling all around me. Nothing but mist. Nothing until I look straight upwards. 
The sun shines brilliantly overhead, a beacon of gold in the foggy sky. So bright. I shield my eyes. Take a look at this, Jay. He's kneeling over the edge of the boat, swiping again and again at the haze. His arm blinks in and out of sight. Jay? What? Look up. And he does. The light seems to sneak past the brim of his Bruins cap and smother the whole of his face. Something about Jay, his face staring straight up into the sky, clicks, and I realize that something is terribly, violently wrong. Why is it there? In the sky? No, Jay. Listen to me. We set off at, what, 8 a.m.? It shouldn't be that high for hours. Time flies when... Jay, either four hours have passed or more, or that isn't the sun. The words are swallowed by the wall of smoke surrounding the canoe. A puzzled frown worms its way onto Jay's face. What else could it be? We look to the sky, burning our retinas as the light beams down at us. Is it getting bigger? I raise my hand to hold my thumb over the golden light, snuffing it out. One, two, three, four, five seconds pass, and then it eclipses my thumb. My hand drops to my lap, awestruck. Why the hell would it be getting bigger? Jay's hand rockets towards mine, snapping shut around my fingers like a mousetrap. It's not getting bigger. It's getting closer. The molten blur fades as the sun descends from the sky. What had appeared as beams of light slowly take shape as spindly threads of translucent flesh, spiraling down like the legs of a spider. The legs pointed at the ends like needles extend from a great glowing bulb, expanding in the sky as it edges towards the canoe. I loose my hand from Jay's. Row! Our oars sigh through the murky water, speeding forward, pressing through the heavy, damp mist. We row and row and row far past where the shore should be. But there is only water. There is only fog. And the creature descends all the same, positioned perfectly over the canoe, no matter how fast we cut through the water. It takes up a third of the sky now, blessing the fog with its pleasant light and warmth. Defeated, I drop the oar. Oh, fuck. I hide my hands in my face, hiding from that damned light. Fuck, fuck, fuck. Jay reaches out for me, shaking my shoulder urgently. Barry, Barry. I can only sob louder, and so Jay pulls me into his chest and holds me there. We're scouts, right? We can figure this out. I take a few sharp breaths through my nose, and then I push Jay away, somehow managing a smile through my burning cheeks, through the oppressive glow of the creature so close now. Its legs spin like ribbon in the air, twisting and turning with graceful flourish as it approaches. Boy Scouts. I duck beneath Jay's seat. My trembling fingers find the latch to the tin box, and I swing the thing open. Gauze, sprays, ointments... Jay kneels down to me and reaches for the compass. The needle's just spinning wildly. More rummaging, then something dull and orange. Here! I take the flare gun in my hands. I look once more to the sky, now almost wholly filled by the creature. Its skin ripples like the river at dusk. The legs 
There must be ten of them. More are mere feet from the canoe. I take aim at the golden heart of the creature and pull the trigger. It clicks. The flare sputters out of the barrel, barely flickering. And it moves so slowly through the air as if the air itself was as thick as water. What? Shit. I look at Jay, the brown tufts hanging out from under his cap, his Bruins cap, and then I see it. The bee. It's facing the wrong direction. I snatch up the compass. Here, too, all of the letters are mirrored, as if the whole world were a reflection. I grab Jay's hand, and just as the golden legs stab through the air, I roll off the canoe and crash into the river. I break out onto the surface, panting. The canoe is overturned in front of me. The fog is starting to clear and the morning sun hangs towards the east. As I clamber onto the underside of the boat, Jay pops out of the water. I sigh, relieved. Jay, I really thought we were... Bury... Bury my leg. I look down in the water. One of the golden needles is pierced straight through his calf. The ray of light turns around and speeds towards the foe's sun, and it starts to tug, to pull Jay out of my grasp, to take him away from me. I anchor my stomach around the edge of the canoe and pull, screaming, watching as one by one the needles pierce Jay's lower half. He screams, writhes, refuses to let go, until he finally goes limp, and the creature wrenches him from my grasp, dragging him under. I dive down into the water, thrashing towards him. But he's not there. The river is cold and black and empty. I return to the surface, and I could only watch through the water's reflection as Jay is lifted towards the creature's bulb, finally absorbed into its glimmering skin. Out of time, I tread water. Out of time. When my legs start to ache and I can float for no longer, I flip the canoe over and climb in, wondering if, had I not escaped the creature's grasp, the boat would have floated down the river, unmanned. Jay didn't drown, but no one listened. At least... No one listened until the dried corpse finally appeared downriver, melted beyond recognition. Only then did Mr. Moore take me into his arms, the two of us sobbing, shaking. Only then did he believe me. Every town has a unique quirk. In some, you can't use the sidewalks on a Sunday. In others, anyone over the age of 16 must hum a tune when leaving the town limits. Weird quirks like that. And similarly, in this tale, shared with us by author Vincent Pemont Desalais, we visit a burg where lycanthropes run wild at night. Like I said, weird quirks. 
performing this tale are Matthew Bradford and Danielle McRae. So living under the light of the full moon might be a pain, but you just have to grin and bear it. Or you could look up some tips on how to deal with werewolves when you're an insomniac. The routine started 30 minutes before sunset. Close all curtains, turn off all lights, make sure there's no meat left out of the fridge, take a shower to wash away your body smell, and shut up, not a sound. Tiptoe on your way to the toilet, never, ever flush. People who had money could afford bars on their windows. They could buy silver bullets or a spray can of werewolf repellent. My father said there was no way that could work, that it was a scam, but I'd feel safer with a can of it anyway. I'd put it next to my bed. You feel safer when you have something to grab, something to hold in your hand, even if it won't do you any good. For most of the night, I couldn't sleep. My eyes stayed stretched open, aimed at the window as howling outside bit my eardrums. In the dark, if you stare at a point long enough, it starts moving, like a spider. Your mind does that. I tried to think about the beautiful things to make the fear go away. You know, so I wouldn't sweat, so I wouldn't smell, and so maybe I could sleep. But the image of a werewolf jumping through my window flashed in my head like a sick light bulb. Peace and dread fought each other through imagery. That gentle stream flowing through the woods, jaws closing with big white teeth snapping, a rabbit jumping in the grass furry creatures creeping through the night in badly lit streets, and my dog Caney licking my ice cream cone. My dog Caney torn open on her front porch in a pool of guts and blood. She had run away one day. I'll never know why. We looked everywhere in the neighborhood and didn't find her. We had to get back home and prepare for the night no matter how much I begged my father to keep searching. She'll come back, he said. And she did in the middle of the night, scratching on the front door. I headed toward it, terrified to let her in. My father heard her too and stopped me right before I could turn the doorknob. Then came the growls, the rumble. Caney's screeching as fangs and claws tore her to pieces. An hour or two, or maybe even three, went by. I shifted position again and again. Sometimes I'd focus on a sound, the creaking of the house, the wind blowing outside, or the occasional howl. It got quieter as the night progressed, but sometimes I'd put my hands to my ears trying not to hear anything. Sobs snuck through the walls. My sister was in the room next to mine. She cried every night. I stayed in my bed too tired to move. She had to learn to deal with the night on her own. All she had to do was build the bunker like I'd shown her. But that night, we were alone. Our parents were at a friend's house. They had got held up, and then it had been too late to go outside. Darkness came sooner that time of year. They had called. Did I remember the routine? Would we be alright? Would I take care of my sister? We would stay in bed and keep quiet, right? Well, of course we would. I got up, slowly, careful to make the bed squeak as little as possible. My sister could learn to deal with the werewolves on her own another time, when her parents would be here. Her room was completely dark, 
as it should be. I whispered her name and got no answer. I tapped on the bed, felt the sheet. Nothing. She wasn't under the bed, either. Noises, like quick footsteps. I rushed to the kitchen and then froze. The front door was wide open. Cold air invaded the house. A wave of panic rose in me, but I swallowed it down. I ran to close the door and lock it. My heart was battering my ribcage. Why on earth would she leave the house? I forced myself to breathe, to stay in control like a big brother should. I put on my glasses and a sweater. I peeked behind the curtain. There was no one in the street, as expected. The town had a curfew, a useless one since nobody dared to go out at night anyway. Bestial shapes lurked in the darker spots. Maybe my imagination. When you're scared, everything's a threat. Nobody knew how many werewolves were roaming out there. 10, 20, 30? Sometimes it sounded like a hundred, and sometimes it was complete silence. And their numbers increased. A bite could turn you into one of them. If you survived it, that was rarely the case. With my hand on the doorknob, I took a deep breath. I had to act. She was alone out there. I went out. The streets were dark. The lamp posts rare. I looked left and right countless times before I dared stepping off the front porch. Should I call my sister's name? Bad idea. They would hear it before she did. She couldn't have gone very far. She must have been hiding somewhere. If she'd been walking around, the odds that she was... Tried not to think about that. I walked on lawns, avoided the streets, tried to look in every direction at once. It was cold. Breath fogged my glasses. And the wind acted against me, lessening my hearing of whatever could be coming my way, carrying my smell to whatever was roaming around. A howl seemed pretty close. I hid behind a bush, looked around. Nothing in sight. The howl came again, closer. Then I saw it. On the opposite side of the street, perched on a rooftop, it lifted its snout in the air, trying to pick up on some smell. Mine. I slowly moved away from the bush and walked along the wall of the house until I reached the backyard. A small doghouse rested under a tree, the kind of place my sister would hide in. I approached, using the stealthy ninja walk I had learned at my karate summer camp. Heel, side soul. I kneeled in front of the doghouse. As I leaned closer, a growl came out, followed by a furry head. I jumped back. A dog, as scared as I was. It barked, so I ran away as fast as I could. The barks would turn into squeals very soon. In a narrow street, I stopped to catch my breath and wipe my runny nose. Then a werewolf came running and stopped in the middle of the intersection. I rushed behind a car and crawled under it. Think quickly, what to do next? Better run if it saw me, but how could I know before it was too late? From underneath the car, I peeked out. The werewolf was gone. I glanced around, heavy paws on the sidewalk. I inched sideways to get a glimpse. The werewolf was walking on all fours, its long, messy hair almost touching the ground. Its head scanned left and right. It sniffed with its noisy snout, mouth half open with the fangs overflowing out of it. It was coming my way. The fear I felt must have been the same feeling my sister had. But damn her for going outside. Since when was she so dumb? How could she do something like that? 
I should have been a better big brother. Should have gone to her room when I heard her cry. Should have been nicer. Should have done something like I did on the first night when I'd heard her sobbing. I'm scared, she had said in a trembling whisper, pointing to the window. There's one right outside. I heard it too, rubbing against the house, growling. We went under the bed and I made her a bunker with the blankets. The werewolf jumped on a car and let out a bone-wrecking howl. The others from all over town answered. I had to cover my smell. Even with a sweater and a shirt on, it wasn't enough. I tried rubbing some dirt on my skin, but the ground was too stiff. The werewolf jumped off the car and landed in the street. It was getting closer. I could hear its breath. Something else moved in the corner of my eye. Another one? I stayed still, forced myself not to look. The werewolf sprinted towards something and I closed my eyes, helpless against what was coming. But the wolf was running away from me. Then came the screams, the painful screams of a, a cat. Poor cat, but it saved my life. After I'd heard nothing for a while, I crawled out from under the car. Time to go home. I wouldn't find her. I'd only get killed in the process. At that point, there were three scenarios. She was already dead. A chill of dread and guilt passed through my body. Or she had found a good hiding spot and she'd stay there until dawn. Or she'd be going back home. And if she did, I'd better be there for her. So I made my way back toward the house, glancing behind me all the time. The closer I got to home, the stronger I wanted to run. And I resisted the temptation until a growl convinced me otherwise. Then I, I ran. I ran as if I could take off in the air, sprinted until all of my weight bumped into my front door. I was bent in two, panting, when the closet door swung open. My sister rushed into my arms, in tears, talking so fast I, I barely understand. I got up to get the picture of mom and dad at the chalet, and I thought I heard their voices outside, so I opened the door, and there was no one on the porch. But I saw something moving on in the street. So I closed the door and hid in the closet. I think I closed the door badly and it opened. I'm so sorry. I was too scared to come out until I knew it was you. I tried my best to comfort her and we got her to her bedroom. I pulled a blanket over her and swore I wouldn't leave the room. A loud noise came from above us, followed by quick and heavy steps. My sister sprang up from her bed and stared at me with two large white circles of her eyes. One of the werewolves had tracked me to the house. It was on the roof, seeking a way in. I grabbed my sister by the arm and dragged her out of the room. Then the window shattered. We ran into the bathroom, shut and locked the door. The werewolf crashed into it. The wood cracked. My sister screamed and sank her nails in my hand. I looked around, nothing helpful. I grabbed the hairdryer and broke the mirror with it. I picked up the largest piece of glass with a towel around my hand, and I waited. The werewolf rushed the door again. The latches threatened to break. And then, like a miracle, it all stopped. Not a sound. The half-broken door stayed motionless. And so did we, until my sister pulled on my sleeve and pointed at the small window above the toilet. Thin rays of light sneaked through the closed curtains. I opened them like heavy rain after months of drought. 
I slowly walked toward the door, holding the piece of glass so tightly that it went through the cloth and cut my hand. I peeked through one of the holes. A naked man was lying on the floor, passed out. Our father. At its roots, it's an ancient game. Some say it hails from before the dawn of time. Some claim they saw dinosaurs playing it. It has many names in its many forms. Manhunt, hide-and-go-seek, catch. But in this tale, shared with us by author Nick Creighton, one thing we can call it is terrifying. Performing this tale are Atticus Jackson, Nicole Goodnight, Jeff Clement, Sarah Thomas, and Aaron Lillis. So the sun's beginning to set. Night is falling. Let the games begin. It's the perfect time to play Tag in the Dark. currently sitting in my childhood bedroom, waiting for my mom to get back from work. I've been perusing r slash no sleep in similar subreddits a lot lately, and being in this house reminded me of a story I can actually share. Since mom picked me up, I have nothing to do and nowhere to go until she gets back, so I figured I'll try my hand at writing one of these. I haven't lived here for a couple years now. I moved to the city to attend university after graduating high school and haven't been back much, aside from the holidays. In truth, university was just an excuse. I really just wanted to get the hell out of the sticks. I grew up in this town, which is less than 12,000 people, a few elementary schools, and only one high school. I know lots of you probably grew up in much smaller places, but I think we're cut from the same cloth. I mean, going to Walmart as a kid was practically the same as a vacation in my mind. Or at least, would be the closest I'd come to one. That being said, I might lose a lot of you when I say that our roads were paved, mostly. And the town's hub garnered a lot of tourism. So it's not like we're smack dab in the middle of nowhere. My mom's house, on the other hand, is a different story. It sits out by the Lonely Creek on the outskirts of town, about a 20-minute drive to the closest grocery store. You wouldn't find street lamps or sidewalks out here, but you would find me, my mom, and my older sister Leah. While we have neighbors, our homes aren't packed and tight like the suburbs. Even if you knew they were there, they're hidden from view by large stretches of thickets and trees. As far as we were concerned, we were living in total isolation. My friends in town loved coming over and playing out in the woods when we were kids. Compared to their little tuna can communes, it was the equivalent of trailblazing through uncharted territories. It may sound exciting, but there's not much going on at my house. 
No paved pathways, dainty gardens, inset pools, or fancy decks. Instead, there's extremely long fences on either side of our property, lined by ditches on both sides, which end abruptly. Where you'd expect a right angle, there was nothing. No corners or turns boxing us in. No frames around the land. I think it's just there to drain water and show where the property ended between us and our neighbors. While it walls us off on the sides, the gap at the back lays open to the vast forest which sprawls all the way to the coast. Accessible to anyone brave enough to venture there. The house is a small, modest building, even after someone had added an extension to the weathered rustic cottage before we moved in. I say extension, but in truth it was clearly an afterthought. It was essentially an unsightly trailer that had latched onto the home like a leech. Its tail extended out into the yard and trees while its maw opened up into our living room. At the tail end of this ugly L-shaped concoction was my bedroom, where I'm sitting now. I used to love it, having windows on both sides of my room. They were low enough that I could climb in and out during games of tag if I stacked up some cinder blocks. It pissed my friends off when I'd stow away here, but I always thought it was pretty funny when I'd finally pop up. The only other building on our property was a garage-like shed which sat at the end of a long, muddy road, which somehow outlasted the seemingly endless fences. I always found it strange that it was erected so far away, until my mom relayed some hearsay that it was there before the house was built, so they weren't actually sure if it was part of the property at all. It was so far, in fact, that there was a large swath of old trees and bushes which covered the space between the structures. It was dense, but you could see the garage peeking through the brush at night since the last owners installed some automatic lights on the outside. It wasn't exactly convenient, so we never really bothered to use it. It always was, and still is, just an empty building with stained concrete floors. Despite this, the automatic lights came on all the time at night. I guess it was just small animals or my neighbor's dog running by. I imagine the sensors must have a ludicrously wide range. With the property so small on the inside and unfathomably large on the outside, it was difficult to sit still indoors. There was always new stuff to find. After starting school, I would regularly have a number of my friends come over and we'd spend all day and nearly all night outside. I remember we'd often pretend to be Jedis, chopping each other's limbs off with saber-like sticks while force-jumping on the trampoline. I was more of a decapitation kind of guy. I was always amused by the number of friends who tried to convince me humans could survive without a head, and even more often, deeply frustrated by those claiming it was just a scratch. Another favorite was hide-and-seek tag under the dark of night. Regular tag just didn't seem to satisfy us back then, so my sister and I would have friends over, only to send them off to hide in the pitch black. A seeker would look for the hiders around the property, who would have to run to the safe point after they had been spotted. If they were tagged, they joined the seeker in rooting out the rest of the players. There wasn't really any winning or losing, just a lot of running, hiding, and stretched out shirt collars. Anyway, the real story starts on one particular summer night, probably about 
eight years ago. I would have been 12 at the time. It was late at night, and my mom was working the night shift like usual. The creatures of the day had gone to sleep, and their nocturnal neighbors began to fill the air with chirps, croaks, and howls. It wasn't uncommon to hear a branch or two break under the weight of a deer's hooves as they passed by, deep in the woods. The sky was clear, but the porch light on the house made it difficult to see any of the would-be stars above us. It was a new moon, too, so the sky manifested as an absolute void. Typically, the darker it was, the more interesting the game was. In retrospect, I'm extremely relieved there wasn't any additional moonlight back then. There were six of us at the beginning, but as it grew dark I had to say goodbye to two of my friends when their parents came by. It was getting quite late after all. There were four of us remaining. Leah, her friend Crystal, my friend Eric, and me. Everyone was about ready to go inside panting and out of breath when I suggested one more round of tag. Nobody was really interested at this point, but I enticed them by suggesting that the first one tagged would buy pizza. It sounded like a good idea at the time. A few games of rock, paper, scissors decided that Crystal would be the seeker this time around. She wasn't very fast, so I, being a cheeky little shit, wasn't going to bother hiding. Instead, I was just going to run circles around her until she gave up. Meanwhile, she'd have to cough up the pizza by default. Not literally, of course. That would be gross. I wasn't the nicest kid back then, but I like to think I've changed. At least a little bit. In a previous game of tag, we had an issue where people wouldn't shout the numbers loudly enough. Intentionally or not allowing them to sneak up on people who weren't ready. We found an interesting fix for this by making the seeker count out the seconds on the back of a metal pot, wrapping their knuckles against the material, holding it high in the air while facing the house. It carried the sound nicely and prevented the aforementioned head starts. Thankfully, our neighbors were too far away to hear the racket and complain. Crystal's knuckles began knocking counting quicker than normal to avoid giving us too much of an advantage. I slipped around the corner of the house, waiting for my chance, not paying any mind to Leah and Eric as they faded into the night. When Crystal finally reached the 50 knocks we had agreed upon many moons ago, the ringing began to subside. Everything went quiet. Even the crickets seemed to silence themselves under the suspense. I hadn't even started running yet and my heart was pounding in my chest. My hair was damp with sweat from earlier. I kept listening for her footsteps or to see her run by so the game of cat and mouse could begin. Yet, she never came. Several minutes had passed and nothing seemed to change. I thought she might have just given up or went in an entirely different direction. Either way, the anticipation was killing me. My impatient curiosity got the better of me as I peeked around the aluminum siding. A face swaddled in hair stood right around the corner, its fingers already stretched out towards me. I panicked, 
Before I could turn to run, my sneakers slipped on the grass and I fell backwards onto my ass as it approached. I tried using my hands to push myself backwards, but I couldn't move fast enough. I looked up as the disheveled being's fingers moved quickly and jabbed into my shoulder. Got you. It was Crystal. She pushed her dark brown hair out of her face and reached down to help me up. Unfortunately, my pubescent ego and wounded pride rejected her offer. Instead, I opted to awkwardly roll over and push myself back onto my feet. My panic had turned to shame. I was regretting the pizza thing now. Crystal crossed her arms, rightfully offended at my childishness. (sighs) All right, well, I guess we just have to find the others. Unless you don't want my help with that either, pizza boy. Thankfully, I didn't have a snotty comeback that I'd have to repeat to you now. The excitement I felt earlier at a free pizza had become a distant memory. I was just eager to end the game and pretend the whole thing just never happened. To make this go faster, I asked Crystal where she'd already looked. With a hint of embarrassment, she declared that she was actually waiting around that corner for an uncomfortably long time. I felt a little better knowing that we were both being pretty dumb. As we stealthily walked around the property in search for the others, we whispered back and forth about the likelihood that they were hiding together. It began to seem like the only option. With each spot we checked, the number of possibilities dwindled until there was nowhere left to hide. Nowhere. Except the forest. There was never any rule against hiding out in the dark woods. It just happened that it was too creepy for most people to hide out there alone, waiting to be found. However, after searching the entire property, the pieces started lining up in my mind. What if they really were hiding together? Crystal was fast to agree with my theory. Oh, totally. I bet they're just tucked away behind a bush back there. Oh, maybe they want to be alone. I playfully wretched at the thought of Eric being into my sister, but who knows? Maybe Crystal was right. Either way, they were definitely crouched down together, somewhere in the dense undergrowth between my house and that old shed. I could just sense it. Yet even though Crystal and I were working as a pair, I could tell neither of us had any intention of walking through those gnarled roots and thick trunks in the dead of night. We stood at the edge of the woods for a while, examining the sight line, when Crystal seemed to notice something. She swiftly walked several paces to my right, leaned slightly, and brought her arm to a point. Hey, the light on that building turned on. I sidestepped until we were shoulder to shoulder, My eyes followed her outstretched finger, the same finger that had probably left a bruise on my shoulder. The garage light was on, cutting through the dark and allowing us to better examine the lush, green space in front of us. I attempted to remediate my earlier cowardice by taking a few steps into the bushes, but I stopped as a swift breeze rustled the greenery in front of me and a snapping twig broke the forest's vow of silence. Butterflies began to fill my stomach, pushing outward and making my insides turn. The sweat on my brow and back went cold in the evening air, and a chill ran down my body. Even though I knew it was probably Eric and Leah, I couldn't ask my legs to move any further. In my head, we had found them. The light was enough confirmation for me. 
that would have to be good enough for my ego. I shouted out into the thicket, hoping my surrender would warrant feedback ending the game. Alright you guys, we give up. Seriously, we know you're back there. Crystal echoed my sentiments, cupping her hands around her mouth to carry her voice deep into the ancient woodland. Come on, lovebirds, game's over. Maybe a minute passed as we returned to absolute silence. The crickets and frogs from earlier still seemed to suppress their natural urge to speak up. Then, another twig snapped. Two dark silhouettes stood up in the distance. They looked about equal in size, but shapeless and blurred against the faint light that broke up the dark miasma. I followed Crystal's example encircling my hands around my lips as I commanded the shadows. Hey! We see you! Come on out now! After a moment, they began walking toward us. They were standing real close together. It sort of looked like they were holding something. Maybe each other's hands? I remember being shocked that Crystal might have been right about Eric. It was dark and hard to tell, but I rolled my eyes anyway, just in case. Crystal and I both gave each other a knowing smile mixed with a look of exasperation, finally glad to be done with the seemingly endless hunt. From a distance, there was a call. Man, why'd you guys give up so easily? It was definitely Eric. Crystal's smile melted away. Her lips ran parallel as her jaw dropped slightly. Her relief turned into concern, slowly spreading across the entirety of her face as she gazed into the light, slatted by black trees. Yeah, seriously. You two walked past us three times. It was definitely Leah. I knew that Crystal realized it just after I did. To a bystander, it must have looked like she was trying to mimic my face mirroring the primal fear that crept up my spine and out my eyes. The silhouettes continued to approach us. My heart was pounding, but again, it wasn't from running. Eric and Leah were definitely together, just like we thought, but their voices weren't coming from the forest in front of us. They were definitely coming from behind us. I looked towards the house, but Eric and Leah weren't in view yet. When I turned back to confirm where the silhouettes once stood, I only found a deep, hungry blackness. The garage light had turned off. As Crystal continued to stare into the encroaching shadows of the woods, I instinctively grabbed her wrist and began pulling her in the direction of our friend's voices. It was the one time of my life where I knew being a coward was the right choice. Eric and Leah came out near the road from the other side of the fence. They began explaining how they were lying in the ditch on the other side, but I didn't care. It didn't matter where they were hiding unless they somehow figured out how to be in two places at once. I tried to hide my anxiety under hushed tones, but spoke with urgency. Guys, don't freak out. There's people out in the woods. They both looked at me blankly before casting skeptical looks at each other. I didn't bother to watch their reactions as I continued to pull Crystal inside. 
Branches continued to crack in the woods behind my house, just like they always did. But now each snap that came nearer brought me closer to tears. These weren't deer. We all piled into the living room, and I immediately began locking all the doors while Eric closed the windows and drew the blinds. My bedroom was the largest room with the lock, so Leah ushered a near-catatonic crystal inside and onto my bed. I closed and latched the door behind us after grabbing a couple knives from the kitchen. I kept the lights off and joined everyone else, kneeling in the dark next to my bed. Crystal and Leah were pressed up against the back wall facing the door, while Eric sat on the edge of the bed beside me. We waited in silence as I pulled out my cell phone. Looking at the time, I expected my mom to be home any minute, so I sent her a text asking for an ETA. I get that it seems silly to text my mom and not call the authorities, but I'd never dialed 911 before, and I was afraid I'd be in trouble. I don't know why, but I thought at the time that once my mom was home, everything would be okay. I clutched my phone as a looming sense of dread filled the room. Footsteps could be heard approaching outside, slowly pacing around the entirety of my bedroom. A sharp sound surprised us, and Leah moved her hand over Crystal's mouth, trying to stifle her rising panic. It sounded like whoever was outside might have thrown something at the house. Two more staccato strikes came from behind my head. It was like they knew where we were. Another loud tap made me grip the knife tightly as I realized what was happening. They weren't throwing things at the house. They were outside my room, knocking on the walls. They knew we were in that room. The knocks continued moving along both sides of the room. Large shadows filled the majority of the shuttered windows. I could hear a deep guttural breathing outside, as though someone was trying to heave breaths in and out, but copious amounts of phlegm blocked the way. I wondered what sort of being could make such a sound, but there was absolutely no way I was going to look. Eric put his hands on my shoulder and whispered over the knocks, which grew in both number and intensity. How many people did you say there were? Two. You could tell my answer wasn't comforting as tremors emerged from Eric's hand, yet it refused to let go. Instead, his grasp tightened as he continued with a quiet stutter. Th then how are they knocking on every side of your room at once? My guts sank to the floor. I hadn't realized. There were knocks coming from every direction, on every wall of the room. All at the same time. I could hear Leah whispering in the corner. 25? 26, 27. Crystal let out a muffled scream between Leah's fingers, as what I assumed was laughter erupted from outside. It sounded like a pack of ghoulish, cackling coyotes. Except coyotes don't know how to knock. As the cacophony seemed to grow, I pulled out my phone to call for the police, animal control, anyone. But my phone rang first. 
It was my mom. My hand wouldn't stop shaking as I answered the call. Hey, hon, what's... Are you almost home? I must have nearly screamed it. I could hear her yelp on the other huh? side of the line. I'm just just about to pull down our road. Why? What's wrong? Leah was still going for some reason. 31, 32, 33. I wasn't sure what to say to my mom, but I could only think of one thing as the horrible, sick laughter continued outside. Please, please just lay into your horn as soon as you pull up. Please, Mom, don't ask why. I was hoping the desperation would get through to her. She stuttered, clearly confused. Uh, okay, uh, I'm almost there. It'll be alright, okay? I think she's always assumed that there was some kind of wild animal outside that we wanted to scare away. God, I hope she was right. I looked at my friends and saw Leah covering her own mouth now, too. Tears dripping from the corner of her eyes as her head tilted back into the wall. 38? 39? Oh. Oh my god. She never explained to me what she figured out that night. The knocking had turned into a frenzied assault. The things outside began hammering against the aluminum siding, creating the most thunderous climax I'd ever heard. I slumped down and wept having no idea what would happen when it was over. Then a sound, nearly as loud, pierced the night and rivaled the demonic clanging from outside. The horn from my mom's car. The knocking stopped, immediately drowned out by the blaring siren coming from our short driveway. The shadows in front of the windows had moved away in the direction of the woods. Crystal broke free from Leah's grip and shouted, pleading for our savior to come and get us. I didn't know if these things outside were a bunch of demented bastards or some group of diseased animals, but the sound of the vehicle was loud enough to scare them away, at least for a minute or two. But I knew it would only be for a minute or two. Guys, we've got to go. Now. I took a quick look behind me to see that the others were already climbing to their feet, though Crystal took some coercion as she leaned into Leah. We ran down the hallway and out the door. My mom was standing in front of the vehicle's headlights, beckoning us to its open doors. I let everyone run past me towards her. I could hear her gasp lightly when she saw Eric run by, wielding a chef's knife. If I was going to get a look at these things that had been terrorizing us, I figured now would be my only chance. I grasped the edge of the extension, took a breath, and looked. For better or worse, peering around the trailer yielded no results. Whatever had been there was gone. I remember hearing a symphony of branches and twigs snapping in the dark, hidden just beyond the tree line. I held my gaze until my mom called for me. Then I immediately turned tail and ran to the car. As my mom backed up, I couldn't take my eyes off the woods. The headlights pointed directly into the blackness and I caught a glimpse of something. It was fast, so I could have imagined it. In fact, I really hope I did. Yet the image of it has been burned into my brain. 
A pair of eyes caught the light, reflecting a haunting yellow back at us from within the shadows. The glowing retinas were embedded deep into the seemingly exposed skull of a frail, deer-like creature that was hunched over, almost like a great ape. It lacked antlers, and its fur, or skin, was mostly black and patchy in some places, almost like its outermost layer was peeling back. It reared backwards as the car screeched into drive, lifting one of its elongated, sinewy arms tipped with three distinct fingers to shield its body. This image on its own was the stuff of nightmares. But what made me tear up again was what I saw as we drove away. For only a couple seconds, as my mom turned to move to the road, the last bit of light revealed an ocean of twinkling stars throughout the forest. Only they weren't stars. It was an ocean of eyes. My mom sped off, and I found myself at a loss for words. We took Eric and Crystal back to their homes. I could barely manage a goodbye. It didn't take much convincing for our mom to rent a room that night. Leah and I tried our best to explain what had transpired that night. And while I could tell that it was hard for our mom to understand, I could see that she believed the unfiltered terror in our voices. I don't blame her, though. I honestly still can't wrap my head around it either. Though the two of us were reluctant to return to the house in the morning, nothing seemed out of place when we arrived with a family friend, one who owned a rifle. Aside from some flattened grass and a strange musky odor, there wasn't much to look at. I couldn't really pin the smell either, but it was enough to make Leah plug her nose while we were looking around. I expected the sighting to be bent out of shape because of the noises we heard, but it looked normal. I kept racking my brain over it. An animal trying to reach its prey wouldn't have held back or cared about denting the house. The more I thought, the more horrible my theory became. What if it or they knew what they were doing? What if they did it specifically to scare us before, I don't know, I'd really prefer not to know. Our mom took us to get a dog that same afternoon. He's some kind of mixed lab and we named him Cooper. I don't know if having a dog actually changed anything, but having Cooper around really helped us during my mom's late shifts. We never played tag at night again, and whatever came out of the woods that night never seemed to come back. Or, at the very least, never came out from behind the trees from deep within the forest. Man, it seriously gives me chills just thinking about it now. While I've heard the strange laughter several times since, it was further away and much easier to blame on some animal. I feel better thinking it was just our overactive imaginations, rather than let that thing exist somewhere out there. I know it seems far-fetched, but it was real enough that Crystal never came back to our house. I don't have a good answer as to what happened that night. 
I'm hoping it was either some teenagers playing a bad joke or some sick animal that was displaced by a storm earlier that year. I guess we'll never know. I only feel comfortable thinking about this now because I know I'll be going back to the city tomorrow and my mom will be moving into town at the end of the month. I'll admit, writing this has made me feel a little uneasy, especially since I haven't seen Cooper since this afternoon. He normally stays outside during the day, but tends to come scratching at the door once it's dark. I'm going to go looking for him with my mom when she gets home, if he's not back by then. Speaking of, it's getting near that time, and I think my mom's knocking on the front door right now. She joked about forgetting her house key lately, said she'd lose her head if it wasn't attached. I guess she wasn't kidding. Hope to hear from you guys soon. Kids can be awful little creeps sometimes. Sure, not always, and not every kid. But the ones we're talking about here, ooh, yuck. There's no excusing this. You see, in this tale, shared with us by authors Manon Lysette and J.J. Cheeseman, the young whippersnappers of this one town hold in high regard a time-honored tradition of running over frogs with their bikes. Ooh. Performing this tale are Kyle Akers, Ellie Hirschman, and Jeff Clement. So let's hope someone gets tired of this cruel behavior and puts a stick in the spokes of this tradition. It's time to put an end to Green Waffles. Where do you draw the line between normal and cruel? Who decides what actions are the signs of a psychopath? Is it a question of intent? Of size of the victim? Lack of guilt? If you slap a mosquito biting you, no one will bat an eye. If you kill a spider in your room, it doesn't set off any red flags. If you step on a worm on the sidewalk, you won't get shunned for it. Is it a majority rules kind of thing? If 90% of people kill spiders on sight, then killing spiders is okay. If 2% pulls their legs off one by one, then kills them, that's not okay. What's the yardstick exactly? I'm sorry. I guess this is my disorganized way of saying I used to do something a little effed up when I was younger. To be clear, I'm not a psychopath. That's not what I'm getting at. I honestly don't show any signs of it, and neither did any of my childhood friends. It's just... Look, close your eyes for a second and imagine we live in a world where everyone boiled cats alive. It's the norm here. Does boiling a cat make you a psychopath in this world? No, of course not. Alright, open your eyes. You're back in our world. Boiling cats alive is not okay. Lobsters, though, totally fine for some reason. You see what I mean? Some vegetarians eat fish. Are fish not animals? 
There isn't a single tightrope between right and wrong. The world is threaded like a spider's web with moral grays, cultural goods and evils, as well as situational and economical exceptions branching out indefinitely. There is no one good answer. I'm from a small podunk town in the middle of nowhere, and in my small town, one of the things you do was make what we call green waffles. In hindsight, it was cruel, sick, maybe even demented. At the time, though, it seemed normal. Everyone did it. All right, enough tiptoeing around it. See, there's this pond at the edge of the forest we call the Tad Hole. It's a decent-sized pond with a million frogs, hence the name. We don't really swim in it because it's basically a swamp. The water is muddy, there's floating algae, it smells rank, and your feet get stuck in the sludgy bottom. More importantly, there's a much cleaner, much more appealing creek right across the road. The Tad Hole is orgy central for frogs. In the summer, the little ones come out and cross the street to get to the creek on the other side. That's where the green waffles come in. We, uh, that is to say the kids in town and I, we would run over them with our bikes. Splat. It was like a sick game of Frogger. Our tires flattened the frogs, leaving little tire track indents in their bodies, like the holes of a waffle. Hence, green waffles. The road would be sprinkled with dime-sized waffles, which eventually cooked into the cement under the scorching summer sun like discarded gum. Like I said, I didn't see a problem with it at the time. Everyone did it. I think I drew the line at size. I'd only run over the little frogs. If I really think about it and ask myself what my reasoning was, I can't say for sure it wasn't because I was afraid I'd slip and fall trying to squash the bigger ones, but... I'd like to think it was following some sort of internal moral code. Like, how you can step on an ant guilt-free but feel bad for stepping on a cat's tail. I don't know why I keep bringing up cats. I love cats. They're just the first animal that comes to mind. It was the night after a long day of thick summer humidity and rain that crescendoed into a storm. The grass was waterlogged and you could smell earthworms in the air. The frogs and toads were out, and through the crackling of thunder, I could hear them croak at the cloudy sky. Perhaps a rain dance, or more accurately, a rain song. When the power went out, I sat out on the porch and watched the storm to stave off the boredom. I swear, every now and again, I could hear this odd sloshing sound coming from the direction of the tadhole. It reminded me of a mudslide weaving its way down a mountain. I can't say I haven't seen bigger storms. But it was rare to see one so heavy. It was hard rain falling down that night, aided by the purple-blue light cast by the frequent lightning. I watched the quarter-sized drops patter the wood of the porch like bullets from some great and organized assault from within the gray clouds. I marveled at how anything could survive in such a torrent. It wasn't like I was ever the philosophical type or a particularly deep thinker, but it is as amazing to me now as it was then. Frogs and toads alike would all fall under the tire of my bike. But this rain, this was their territory. They didn't just survive in it, they thrived. That odd sloshing sound came again. It was loud enough to hear through the rain, and 
I wondered if someone had gotten their car stuck and was trying to pull it out. God, did I feel sorry for whoever that sad sap was. Then it occurred to me that I didn't hear the roar of an engine, or the distinct sound of tires sputtering in the mud either. I tried to listen harder and pinpoint exactly what was going on. There was a rumble from the sky, followed by a crack of vicious lightning that was close enough to light up the whole front yard as if by floodlights. The lightning was followed by a loud snap, once again from the direction of the tadhole. The snapping sound brought again the sound of the sloshing, but this time it was a little different. It was muted somehow. My best guess was that lightning had struck a small tree and it sank into the swampy muck. That was it. Trees. Branches and trees blown over by the storm and falling into the tadhole. I watched the toads and frogs hop haphazardly around the yard until eventually I got bored and wandered back inside, waiting for the power to come back. A week went by with seven days of nasty, muggy heat, and of course, green waffles. Kids with their bikes were lined up on either side of the road between Tadhole Street and the creek. We called it Tadhole Street because it was the street that rested on the edge of the woods that led into the marsh that we called the Tadhole. I know, real original. Most kids would cheer as others rocketed down the pavement on their huffies, trying their best to hit as many frogs as they could while maintaining top splatter speed. The little frogs would burst like overstuffed ticks under the weight of the tires. Some of the kids would have faces of disgust as they looked on in apparent horror. The thing about those kids, though, the ones that looked disgusted, they never left. Soon they'd hop on their bikes and join right on in with the rest of us. And then came Mikey's birthday party. It was a good one, too. Cake, ice cream, the whole nine. But the highlight of the day had been when Mikey's parents revealed that they'd been hiding a four-wheeler in the garage as a final surprise gift. Every kid at that party was simultaneously jealous and ecstatic from the vicarious excitement we got from Mikey. When that garage door rolled back to reveal that shiny red frame attached to those massive wheels that our dinky little bike tires could never measure up to, we cheered. All of us hooped and hollered when Mikey started it up and drove it around the yard to test it out. When he pulled back up at the front of the garage, he killed the engine and ran over to me, grinning like an idiot. We are going to make the biggest green waffle ever. I stayed at Mikey's house that evening. It was another night of hot and sticky, humid air that led into a morning of the same. As soon as we could, Mikey and I raced to Tadhole Street, with me riding in the back of the four-wheeler. He was adamant we use it to make the biggest green waffle there was. And like I said earlier, I'd typically avoid the bigger frogs. The little ones were easier to justify in my mind, and I loved the way they exploded like fruit gushers. At first, that was what happened. Mikey called the frogs and toads fresh batter, on account of them being the one and only ingredient in our waffles. There was plenty of batter out that morning. Small toads and frogs littered the edge of the forest and jumped sporadically from grass to pavement in quick hops. Let's go! I held on tight as we barreled toward the throng. Normally there wouldn't be many kids here this early, but almost everyone that was at Mikey's party had already beaten us there in anticipation of the show. They watched with their bikes from the side of the road and cheered us on as we trampled over seven or eight small frogs. The satisfying squelching sound that usually came couldn't be heard over the roar of the four-wheeler, but that wasn't the only taste of disappointment. When we turned around and rode back to check our handiwork, Mikey huffed. Aw, man, the tires are too big. None of the frogs we ran over looked like much more than puddles of green and red mush. 
Like Mikey said, the tires weren't small enough for the treads to make any sort of indent in the frog bodies. No green waffles. And then it happened. We both spotted it at the same time. A large bullfrog, the biggest I'd seen, jumped out from the high grass of the tadpole side. Breakfast is served. Mikey hit the throttle. I wasn't comfortable with running over the bullfrog. My own self-adjusted moral code screamed at me to stop Mikey, but I couldn't. We hit the frog before I could even call out, and I clamped my eyes shut as a meager brace for impact. This time, I did hear the sound. There wasn't a satisfying burst, or if there was, I didn't hear it over the four-wheeler. What I did hear was an awful cracking sound as the ATV's tires fractured and snapped the frog's bones. Mikey spun the four-wheeler around and hit the brake. In the road where the frog used to be, there was now a football-sized mass of flesh. The kids that were cheering before all ran into the road to get a better look, and Mikey and I followed suit. This time, the treads of the four-wheeler's tires seemed to be nearly perfect size for the bullfrog. It was exactly like Mikey wanted. The biggest green waffle we'd ever seen. None of the frog's body was recognizable, save for a single eyeball that somehow didn't manage to get completely destroyed. It bulged out of the waffle like a bulbous blackhead. All the other kids cheered. I felt like I was going to be sick. For the rest of the day, all the kids took turns riding on the back of Mikey's four-wheeler. He wouldn't let anyone else drive it except for me, which came as a surprise. I lied and said I was getting a headache, and after a half hour or so of watching Mikey smush green bodies into the pavement, I asked if we could head home. Mikey didn't like it, but he agreed. Whatever bad could be said about Mikey, above all else, he's a good friend. That night was a hot one. I had my bedroom window open, but it didn't help much. I thought I might go crazy lying in bed and covered in sweat. Then I heard the rumble of thunder in the distance, and along with it came a very welcome breeze through my window. Moments later, I could hear the steady fall of rain on the side of the house. I shivered and pulled my covers up to my chin. The sound of the rain was soothing, and wrapped up in my blankets, I began to drift off. I couldn't have been asleep for more than a minute or two when a sound shook me awake and I shot up in bed. It was a deep warbling, almost like the beginning of an earthquake, low and rhythmic. It got louder for a moment, then stopped as suddenly as it began. I stood up and went to the window to peer out into the dark. I saw nothing, but the sound came again. It was definitely coming from the direction of the tad hole. I grabbed my phone and called Mikey to see if he heard it. Did I hear it? Yeah, I heard it. It shook the whole house. Mikey liked to exaggerate a lot, and that's probably what he was doing now. And again, among our friends, he did live closest to the tad hole, so maybe he was telling the truth. I began to feel sick again. I'm going to call Josh. Can you call Lewis and Mitchell? I want to go check it out tomorrow, and we should see if they want to come. When I called Lewis and told him what Mikey told me, he was pumped. When I called Mitchell, he felt the same way. Their excitement didn't make my sick feeling go away. I wanted to go check it out, too. I wouldn't have called Mikey in the first place if I didn't, but still. Something felt off, and I couldn't place what. Early the next day, we all headed out to Tadhole Street. Mikey picked me up on his four-wheeler, and the rest of the boys brought their bikes. Before we even got to the usual green waffle spot, something was different. From the edge of the forest and leading across the road toward the creek, 
was a large muddy trail. Whoa, what the hell did that? Mikey knelt down next to Lewis to look at the trail on the tadpole side. Uh, boar, maybe? It could have gotten trapped in the swamp and drowned. My eyes scanned the trail from where Mikey knelt to the other side of the creek and beyond. What would it be doing in that nasty pond when there's fresh water right over there? Running from something, maybe. What would a boar run from out here? A wild boar would rip you up. I've seen it happen. I saw Lewis roll his eyes. Besides, there aren't any tracks at all. Right. And what makes a trail without leaving any prints? None of us had an answer. We heard the sound of croaking, and we all turned to see at least a dozen frogs and toads bouncing out into the road. Whatever modicum of investigation there was flew out the window. Breakfast is served. Suddenly, the mud trail was forgotten. Luckily for me, all of the frogs out that day were of the smaller variety. The other boys ran to their bikes, and Mikey and I returned to the four-wheeler. We had a blast, popping and smashing our green waffles into the pavement, their bodies baking under the sun and smelling absolutely atrocious. We loved every minute of it. After about an hour, Mikey announced that he had to help his dad with chores, and we all got ready to head home. Before he got on his bike, Lewis asked me if I wanted to come over and check out a new board game he'd gotten. Lewis and I were the only ones in our group into those type of games that were way too expensive with like a thousand different parts and took forever to learn the rules. I had Mikey drop me off and I rode my bike to Lewis's so his mom wouldn't need to run me home. It turned out the game Lewis was talking about was called Red Red Ridge. It was a cooperative board game where you have to manage supplies and basically just survive in an abandoned town until rescue arrives. It was pretty fun once we'd worked through the seemingly endless rulebook, that is. I was at Lewis's house pretty much all day, until the sky got dark and it began to rain again. The sky looked nasty, and I decided to leave before it really started to pour. I said goodbye to Lewis and started to pedal home. The rain was falling at a steady pace by the time I'd made it halfway home, but I was making good time. I'd made it another 40 feet or so, then rode straight into a pothole. I didn't see it until it was too late. Flailing like a fish out of water, I tumbled forward off my bike. The pavement came to meet me hard and fast. Reflexively, I curled up in a quasi-fetal position as best I could to brace for impact. It didn't help much. My shoulder took most of the impact, and I could tell it was definitely bruised. I let out a grunt of pain as I stood to my feet. The wind was knocked out of me, and I was sopping wet, but otherwise I was intact with nothing broken. My bike wasn't so lucky. The front rim was bent, and the tire was flat. I let out a dejected sigh and picked up my bike, continuing the rest of my journey home walking with it beside me. The rain was really coming down now and I kept my head low. The broken tire on the bike threatened to drive me mad while the bent metal squeaked and squawked with each rotation. Soon I was on Tadhole Street, which meant I only had a 20 or so minute walk home. After walking down a bend in the road and coming up on the usual green waffle spot, I saw a familiar sight. It was Mikey's four-wheeler parked and abandoned on the edge of the forest. My walk with my bike turned into a jog. When I made it to the four-wheeler, I didn't see any signs of damage. So if it wasn't crashed, maybe the battery went dead? Then I spotted footprints leading away from the four-wheeler and into the woods on the tadpole side. They were shallow and hard to make out thanks to the rain, but they were definitely kid-sized. Mikey! I didn't get a reply. 
first. Through the sound of falling rain, I heard it. It was quiet and sounded far away, but it was distinctly Mikey's voice. I let my bike clatter to the ground and ran full speed into the forest. The unbeaten path into the trees was thick. I lost my footing more than once on the untamed roots on the forest floor. Soon, solid earth gave way to muck as I drew close to the tad hole. A little farther up, the muck turned into green water. A few feet in front of the pond was Mikey. He was trying to reach out for a nearby tree, but he couldn't quite reach. It was apparent his feet were stuck, and I noticed he was missing his right shoe. Mikey! His head snapped around to look in my direction, his wide-eyed, panicked expression turning to one of relief. Daniel! Daniel! Thank God! I'm stuck! Yeah, I can see that. What are you doing out here? I heard that sound again, and I came to check it out, but the mud is too thick. I stepped too far and got stuck. Mikey momentarily lost his balance and nearly fell forward into the mud before riding himself again. Damn it. I I lost my freaking shoe, man. Mikey's tone was completely defeated. He looked so helpless and ashamed there in the mud and the rain with only one shoe on. The scene was so silly, I couldn't help but laugh again. Will you get over here and help me? Okay, okay, keep your shirt on. I'm on my way. I took a single step forward, but was stopped in my tracks by that familiar sloshing sound. In the pond directly behind Mikey, the water bubbled and churned. I didn't get out a single sound before the surface of the green water parted, and a large brown mass rose out of the swamp. Mikey let out a scream and lost his balance again. This time, he did fall. His arms windmilled out in front of him like some cartoon character, and his face landed in the sludge, his hands sinking deep into the mud. The creature that pulled itself out of the algae-infested water was frog-like in appearance, except it was the size of a sedan. Giant feelers sprang out of odd places on its body, reminiscent of catfish whiskers. Its gargantuan throat pulsed rhythmically as its eyes, eyes the size of watermelons, seemed to consider the both of us. It lifted both of its huge front feet out of the pond and used them to drag its body closer to Mikey until it was over him. Mikey tried desperately to pull himself free, but it was no use. In his panicked frenzy, the mud may as well have been quicksand, holding his hands like shackles. Help me! Please! The monster opened its cavernous mouth, revealing a blistery black and blue tongue. Clear liquid ran from the sores and sizzled as it made contact with the falling rain, causing wisps of smoke to flume up. The tongue lolled out of its mouth and rolled over Mikey's legs. Mikey let out a piercing shriek of pain unlike anything I have heard from a living person. The fabric on his jeans melted away and revealed skin that began to bubble and blister underneath. The last thing I remember seeing on Mikey were the tracks made by tears on his mud-streaked face. In an instant, the tongue retracted like a rubber band, pulling Mikey inside the frog's mouth as his lips snapped shut. There was nothing I could do but watch in horror. And more horrific still, I could see the indents of his hands pushing against the frog's long, thin throat trying to break free. But the skin was stronger than it looked. I could still clearly hear agonizing screams as the fluids inside the frog's mouth began to slowly digest him the creature's alien eyes staring at me the whole time. It let out a booming croak that was so loud it may as well have been a shotgun blast. I turned 
turn and ran as fast as I could, not pausing to look back once. As soon as I made it to the four-wheeler, I jumped on and rode as fast as I could. I only stopped once, when I came up to something in the road and it terrified me more than what I'd witnessed moments ago. Mud trails, dozens of them, all leading out of the forest toward the creek. With renewed incentive to get the hell out of there, I hit the gas with all I had. It didn't stop till I made it to Mikey's house. I ran through the door drenched and out of breath. Mikey's father was sitting on the couch when I came in rambling about giant frogs and Mikey getting eaten. I must have sounded like a complete lunatic. But once he realized I'd met Mikey was in trouble in the swamp, he tore out of the house and got into his truck, speeding off toward the tat hole. Mikey's mom got towels for me and tried to calm me down, but I was in hysterics. She called my own mother, and in 20 minutes, I was taking a shower, trying to forget the sound of Mikey's screams and knowing I never would. Six hours after that, Mikey's mother called the police and told them her husband hadn't come back home. Then 24 hours after that, she officially filed a missing persons report for the both of them. I knew neither of them would ever be found. Did the creature feel bad for what it did? Probably not. We were insects to it. Eating Mikey didn't cross any of its moral lines. But thinking of every splattered toad and frog we drove into the pavement, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it was abiding by some sort of moral code. Maybe this was revenge. final tale, we join John. John's been playing baseball since he was old enough to hold a bat. And in this tale, shared with us by author J.J. Smith, it's time for John to step up to the plate for his most important inning of his life. Performing this tale are Dan Zapula, Jessica McAvoy, Graham Rowett, and Jesse Cornett. So the bases are loaded, the world holds its breath for John to hit a home run. All he has to do is swing. Babe Ruth is remembered as one of the greatest players of all time, despite striking out more often than he got on base. He actually held a record for strikeouts that would last for 30 years. This isn't why he's remembered, of course. If that were the case, then he would be little more than a mildly interesting footnote in baseball history, an otherwise forgettable bench warmer. Instead, we remember the babe as the Sultan of Swat, because when he did manage to connect wood with leather, you better believe that ball was going into the stands. One of the most memorable moments of the babe's career took place in the third game of the 1932 World Series against the Cubs. During the game, both the players and the fans from the Chicago side were giving him a hard time. This was near the end of the Bambino's career, so many people considered him to be worn out and washed up. 
just a has-been. At bat in the fifth inning, he was two strikes down. The Cubs' dugout was really ribbing on Babe. They probably thought that if they could get under his skin that they could break his concentration. The odds were already in their favor that Babe would strike out. Even in his best days, that would be the safe bet. So why expect anything less from the has-been whose best days were behind him? That's when Babe pointed towards the stands. Now it's debated exactly who or what he was pointing at. He might have been pointing at center field, the pitcher, or at the Cubs' dugout. But the most popular theory, what I believe, is that he was showing exactly where he was going to put that ball. Two strikes down, a tie score, and the entire city of Chicago against him. It would have been easy for the babe to give up. Instead, he swung. And wouldn't you know it, he sent that sucker flying over 440 feet into the stands, right in the direction he indicated. That was the most memorable single swing in baseball history. The Yankees would go on to win the game 7-5. I'm telling you all of this to understand why I have to do what I'm going to do. I'm never going to have the opportunity to become a has-been like the babe. To be a has-been, first, you have to be. Me? I'm a never-will-be. But that's not going to stop me from taking my swing. I woke up this morning just after 4 a.m. Normally, I'll sleep in until at least 10 in the morning on the weekend. Even then, it took my mom yelling at me at least three times before I finally dragged myself out of bed. But with my big swing coming up this evening, my body was like a coiled spring. I didn't even need an alarm to wake up. One minute I was dead asleep, and the next I was so awake that I felt like I pounded an entire six-pack of Mountain Dew. I jumped out of bed. Everything was already set out where I placed it the night before. First, I changed from my pajamas into my Yankees Little League uniform. Next, I collected my Louisville Slugger and my school backpack that I had stuffed with every ball I owned. With everything I needed for my plan, I sneaked out of my room. Never before had I felt more tuned in to the world around me than at that moment. Even my night vision seemed cranked up to 11. The hallway that normally looked nearly pitch black during so many nighttime bathroom trips now looked just a bit dim. For my plan to work, I needed to be quiet as a ninja. Sound was the enemy. Normally, I probably would have stepped on at least one of the loose hallway floorboards. But on that night, I tiptoed around each like I had psychic powers or something. As I neared the end of the hallway, I froze. I could see the soft glow of the television on in the living room. I recognized the audio from the home movie of my eighth birthday party five years ago. 
Under this, there was another, softer sound. I had to listen for a moment before I realized it was Mom crying. I turned the corner of the hallway toward the back door and away from the living room. Before I went to bed, I had made sure to leave the deadbolt unlocked. It makes a loud thunk when it was turned that I couldn't afford. My hope was that my dad hadn't discovered it and locked it after I went to bed. But luck continued to be in my favor, and I found it as I left it. Outside, the summer night air was comfortably warm. The cloudless sky over me showed more stars than I ever remembered seeing. It looked like glitter spread over a black velvet cloth. From the tall grass, insects sang their final lullaby to the world. It would have been the perfect night, if not for the distant sound of screaming. The boom of an explosion made me look around. I decided it was far enough away that I probably didn't have to worry about it. The sound came from the direction of the city, and my destination was in the woods. It was a ten-minute walk down the well-worn path starting at my backyard to the clearing in the forest. Once there, I turned my backpack upside down, and the dozen or so old weathered baseballs tumbled onto the wet grass. I snatched one up and put my bat on my shoulder. If I had one regret at that moment, it's that I didn't have anyone to pitch to me. I asked Aaron, but he said he wasn't allowed to leave his family's shelter. So, I threw the balls into the air and swung at them as they came down. It was pretty awkward to do it like that, so I didn't hit as much as I would have with a proper pitcher. Plus, my goal was height rather than distance. This is what's usually called a pop fly, and batters try to avoid it. So to do it on purpose was a bit of an adjustment. But I reminded myself that when my big swing came up, that I would have a much easier target. All I really needed to do was to swing and swing hard. Whenever I did manage a hit, I would have to run out into the field, find the ball, and bring it back to the pile beside the old hubcap that I used as home plate. I repeated this process for the remainder of the night, only finally stopping when the orange glow of morning peeked over the tops of the trees. Realizing that my family would be worried if I didn't get back, I gathered up all of my balls and took the path back home. I didn't bother stealthily walking in the back door. There was no need. With the sounds coming from the kitchen, I could tell everyone was already up. Walking in, I found Dad and my older brother Bill already sitting at the table. Mom was at the stove. The trembling cigarette in her hand made me feel sad. She had quit two years ago, and to see her just throw all that hard work away was a disappointment. Dad and Bill weren't setting any better of an example. Dad had a bottle of whiskey that he was pouring into his number one dad coffee mug. Bill had his feet up on the table as he took a hit off of a joint. 
It was never a secret that Bill smoked pot. We would smell it coming off of his clothes when he came home on Saturday nights. However, there was something of an unspoken agreement between him and our parents that he was never to bring it into the house. But everything was different now, wasn't it? Where were you? Mom's words were just below a shout. From the lines running down her cheeks, I could tell that she had been crying. I sat down at my usual spot at the table. The breakfast piled before me dwarfed Thanksgiving dinner, and on the stove, I saw that Mom still had all four burners going and an electric griddle on the side. There were stacks of pancakes, piles of sausage, bacon, sirloin steaks, eggs, and fruit. A bowl that we usually used for popcorn was filled past overflowing with hash browns. There were gallons of milk, OJ, and cans of soda of all kinds. Mom never let us drink soda for breakfast. Just out hitting balls in the woods? There was no reason for me to lie anymore. Mom sighed. She stubbed out her cigarette and picked up the pack on the counter to fetch a new one. But her hands shook so bad that she dropped the first and needed to grab another. It's just... you need to stay inside. We all need to stay inside. You need to be with your family when... What about my big game? I didn't look up as I filled my plate with the in-home buffet. Up until that point, Bill had a leg propped up on the table. Another thing he would have never been allowed to do before everything changed. But now, he brought it down so hard that he stomped on the linoleum tile. What the... <coughs> Bill tried to speak, but with his lungs full of smoke, it came out as a croak. He spent a good minute coughing and trying to catch his breath before he could finish his thought. What the fuck is wrong with you? There is no game. There will never be another game. You know that, right? How many times do we have to tell you this? When it happens... When it happens, I need to swing. Why? What difference does it make, huh? Bill grabbed me by the front of my jersey. His right arm pulled back and tensed like he was getting ready to punch me. Dad leaned forward and put a hand on Bill's shoulder. He didn't say a word. He only grunted and shook his head, then went back to staring down at his mug full of alcohol. Bill shoved me away. He wrapped an arm over his eyes and started to sob. Dropping the spatula onto the floor, Mom rushed over to Bill and wrapped him in a hug. Dad didn't stand up from his seat, but reached over and placed a hand on Bill's back. Please, John. Please just promise that you will be with us when it happens. Mom looked at me with pleading eyes as she held my brother.
After breakfast, we all gathered in the living room to watch Pixar movies. Mom made popcorn and offered us bowls of ice cream. Though, after the gigantic breakfast we had, no one did more than pick at the snacks. Near the end of the last movie, Dad stepped out of the living room for a few minutes. He returned with the orange box that the man from the government had dropped off. Mom became stiff as a piece of wood. She refused to acknowledge the box. Maybe she thought if she didn't look at it, that it and its awful contents would go away. Dad fumbled with opening it up. By this point, he was most of the way through his bottle. It was the first time that I'd ever seen him drunk. I've seen him tipsy, sure. Four beers at a cookout, sure. But never before had I seen him stumbling as he walked or slurring his words. After he worked the box open, he pulled four orange tubes and lined them up on the coffee table, like they were soldiers with a grim mission. On the side of each was that kind of tiny text that you see on boxes of medication. But what was most obvious was the skull and crossbones inside of a triangle above that text. Mom turned off the TV after the credits. I'll... Put on some music. She walked over to the stereo like she was in a daze and looked through the rack. She popped in a CD and light classical music came from the speakers. I was hoping for some Slayer, but yeah, this'll do. Bill made an empty sound that I think was a laugh, but it sounded more like air escaping the lungs of a corpse. So, so how do we want to do this? Should I do everyone? Or should everyone do themselves? Despite slurring over his words, Dad's expression was stone sober. I stood up. I don't want to. I already told you that I have a game today. I turned to walk to my room to get my equipment when I felt a hand lock onto my forearm and yank me back. I turned to see Bill holding on to me. Let me go, Bill! I tried to pull away, but the three years in age and the foot and a half in height that he had on me made all the difference. Bill pulled me down into his lap and wrapped both arms around me in a bear hug. I'll get John. You and Mom can decide what you're doing. Dad nodded. After taking one last drink from his bottle of whiskey, he picked up one of the tubes. With shaking hands, it was placed on the side of his neck. His thumb depressed a button. It made a hissing sound, almost like when you open a can of soda, except quieter. 
Dad set the tube down and picked up the second. Mom was crying again, but she did her best to hold it in. She just kind of hitched, like she had the hiccups. Leaning forward, she brushed her hair away from her neck. Dad leaned in and kissed it. Then he placed the tube to her neck and pressed the button. While all of this was going on, Bill held me across the chest with one arm. With his free hand, he snatched up the two remaining tubes. Chill out. Just chill out. Bill's lips were right up against my ear. Just wait. The first tube he put into the side of his neck, then almost as an afterthought, he pressed the button and tossed it away. No, no, stop! I don't want this, Bill, please! I fought to get away. Bill threw me to the ground and climbed on top of me. I punched and thrashed. He barely took notice. It was like hitting a bag of sand. I tried to sit up, but Bill grabbed my neck and forced me back down hard enough that my head bounced off the carpet. He held up the orange tube in a way that made me think of a hero getting ready to stake a vampire in a horror movie. He swung it toward my neck. I'll never be able to thank Bill enough for what he did next. The end of the tube came down at my neck, but at the last second, diverted to the fleshy webbing between the finger and thumb of his hand, holding me down. When he pressed the button on the end, the syringe inside the tube delivered its dose into Bill rather than me. Bill leaned in, whispered to me again. Just wait. Do it for Mom. After, after you can go. Knock it out of the park for me. Bill fell off me and spoke out loud. See, that wasn't so bad. Sitting up, I saw that Dad was holding on to Mom on the couch. Come over here with Mommy and Daddy. Mom held her arms out to Bill and me. We both walked to her, but Bill stumbled part way. Ah, shit. Dizzy. I don't feel anything yet. Mom looked to Bill. Then Dad. Dad shrugged. Maybe it affects some people faster than others. I helped Bill to his feet and let him lean on me as we walked over to the couch. Mom pulled me onto her lap like she used to do when I was younger. I felt silly being 13 years old and sitting on my mom's lap, but it made her feel better, so I didn't complain. 
Bill snuggled in and rested his head on her shoulder. Feel... tired. Bill slurred his words more than Dad, who had nearly an entire bottle of whiskey in him. Mom kissed Bill's forehead and held him. Just close your eyes, baby. We sat there clinging to one another in silence. Bill stopped breathing first. After that, Mom. And finally, Dad. I did my best to mimic the effects of the drug during the process to not give away Bill's ruse. I think I sat on Mom's lap for close to an hour. When I was sure that the awful process was over, I reached up a quivering hand and shook Dad's shoulder. The skin there was like touching a block of clay. When he didn't respond, I shook him again. This time, he just slumped over, his eyes staring at nothing. Sliding out from beneath the dead weight of Mom's embrace, I stood in front of my motionless family for maybe ten minutes. I watched them. Never before have I had a panic attack, but from the basement of my stomach, an icy feeling of pain and despair clawed its way up. I knew if I allowed it to take over and gave in to that fear that I would never leave this living room. I put both hands over my face and wept as quietly as I could. At that moment, I did consider staying there and being with them when it happened, just like Mom wanted. What happened next, I know, was just my imagination, but I could swear that I felt a large, calloused hand rest on my shoulder. The hand of a man who spent his life with his hands wrapped around a piece of maple. The hand of a man who, when everyone thought he was washed up, swung those hands anyway. Swing, kid, swing, kid, swing. A rough voice spoke in my head. I sucked in a sob and nodded. I might be and never will be, but I at least had to make the swing. Glancing down at my watch, I saw I might have just enough time to get to the ball field if I hauled ass. I ran to my bedroom, shoved the baseball bat into my backpack, and slung it over my shoulder. This time, I didn't bother bringing the balls. I didn't need them. I was going to swing at something much larger. I ran into the garage. On pure muscle memory, my hand slapped the button to open the automatic door. I jumped on my bicycle and threw my weight onto the foot pedal. After I tore out of my driveway, I didn't even bother to close the garage door behind me. It would have been pointless. I had no intention of ever returning. It had been nearly a month since I'd been anywhere other than my house or the woods behind it. The city I grew up in looked like the reports on the news from countries devastated by war. Houses were burned down. Cars were abandoned in the middle of the street. 
A house at the end of my block had dead bodies hanging from ropes beneath a maple tree. In front of this was a sign that read, Looters will be shot. At one point, I passed a naked man on the street who had a burning Molotov in each hand. An insane smile crossed his face when we made eye contact. He threw one of the flaming bottles at me. I swerved around it as it exploded in the street, sending broken glass and burning gasoline everywhere. The heat from it was enough to singe the ends of my hair. I continued on without looking back. Going past a church, a preacher stood on the roof. It was difficult to hear what he was saying over the whine of feedback as he shouted into the microphone. The only words I could make out were, The Day of Judgment. In the lawn, there were rows of motionless forms beneath clean white sheets. They were arranged as orderly as a military graveyard. I pushed on. I did my best not to become distracted by anything that wasn't directly between me and my goal. When I saw the sign for Beauregard Memorial Park, I turned hard enough that my bike threw up dirt and small stones as I skidded around the bend. My legs screamed at me from the effort of pumping them harder and longer than I ever had before. It didn't matter. I didn't need my legs. As long as I could swing a bat. First, I passed by the community pool, followed by the duck pond. Just past the pond was my goal. The diamond where I would take my swing. In the parking lot of the ball field, I squeezed the bike's brakes. But I was going too fast, and I squeezed too hard. The bike twisted out from under me. It stopped moving. I kept going. On reflex, I threw my hands out between myself and the pavement rushing up to greet me. It felt like I slid a hundred feet when really it wasn't more than two or three. On a normal day, a spill like that probably would have had me running home crying. But things were different now. I picked pieces of jagged gravel and small glass bits out of my bleeding hands. My palms and right forearm were scraped to hell. Steady rivers of blood ran down my arms and fell onto the pavement in fat drops. It looked worse than it was. Nothing was broken anyway. Just a scrape, I told myself. I could still hold a bat. Tearing the backpack off, I retrieved my Louisville slugger. Testing my grip on it resulted in a burning, tearing sensation. It was uncomfortable, but my grasp was firm. The dirty gray tape on the handle soaked up the blood and still gave a nice, tight grip. I walked out onto the field and into the batter's box. I've stood by this same plate going back to when I was first allowed to join a t-ball team. All of those times, the field was filled with cheering parents and jeering opponents. Now the only thing I hear is the blowing of the wind and the distant muffled sound of a preacher shouting on a rooftop. They say when Babe Ruth pointed that the stadium went quiet. Even his opponents shut up. I point now at my opponent. Not to the vacant pitcher's mound, the empty dugouts, or even the unoccupied center field. 
I point at the sky. It's a beautiful July summer day. Warm, but not humid. Not a cloud in the sky. You couldn't ask for a more perfect day for baseball. But in the clear blue sky, the bright sun now shares its space with a smaller and almost equally bright twin, the meteorite Thanatos. Though some people have called it Wormwood or Revelation, an astronomer discovered it two years ago. The governments did their best to hide it from the world as long as they could, but eventually, every amateur astronomer was able to spot the bright new star in the sky. It's over three times the size of the meteorite that killed the dinosaurs. The experts on the news estimated that it would kill 99.8% of all life on Earth. I remember when I first saw the 3D model of it on the news that I didn't feel as scared as I knew that I should be. My first thought was how the off-white and nearly spherical rock looked like a baseball. I had a lot of plans for my life. I was going to get on the high school varsity baseball team. Eventually, I'd catch the attention of scouts and get a free ride through college. Right out of college, I'd be picked up by the Yankees, then go to the World Series. I was going to be someone, but now because of a damn space rock, I'm a never will be. So I'm standing here at home plate. The light in the sky is getting bigger. I have a plan. I know it's stupid and impossible. My family thought I lost my mind, that I'm in denial. But I know what the outcome will be. I know there is nothing I can do to stop this. But there is one thing that I can do. I can swing. As the fires wane and embers glow, our stories cease as shadows grow. The night is long and darkness deep. Remain with us. Embrace No Sleep. The No Sleep Podcast is presented by Creative Reason Media. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski. Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening 
and for being a supportive Season Pass member who is under our spell. This audio production is copyright 2021 and 2022 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.